Hier komen wij in vreemd. Hello, my name's Ros Ward. You're listening to Red Flag Radio, a revolutionary socialist podcast that is recorded in Australia, which means uh, we record on stolen land that is Indigenous land that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're um, recording a few special episodes to um, enjoy the summer here in Australia and also the, the Christmas festive period, whatever people do with their time. Um, and what we're introducing you to are some of the highlights from the annual Marxism conference that happens here where me and Liam are in Melbourne. And that conference is happening again in 2021 and it's going to be a multi-city national extravaganza. Uh, so to get excited for that, which will be happening um, Easter weekend 2021, and people can find out more on the marxismconference.org website about the upcoming speakers. We wanted to feature some of our highlights and some of the highlights that have been requested by listeners of Red Flag Radio um, to play again. So we prioritised <laughs> some of our Patreon supporters, patreon.com forward slash Red Flag Radio podcast if you want to join them, and thanks for all your support in 2020. Um and the first episode, we've called it uh, The Black Panthers and the Possibility of Freedom because uh, one of the things that um, the second clip we're going to play, Eamon McCann talks about, uh, is the possibility of freedom that is contained within the socialist project. And I think there's some really inspiring stuff in all of this. Anyway, I'll let the speakers speak for themselves. Liam, do you remember when Billy X. Jennings came to Melbourne for Marxism in yeah, of course. You know, 2013? Yeah. Yep. It was a pretty amazing moment. I think we couldn't quite believe that we had a real-life Black Panther Party member. Yeah, because there had been uh, – one of the things that came up at the time was that uh, some of the people who had been around the traps reminded us that the last time a um, Black Panther tried to come – like a you know, Black Panther from the U.S., uh, tried to come to Australia was, you know, a few decades earlier when the Latrobe University Student Unionism Union had tried to um, bring uh, one of their activists out, one of the Black Panthers out, and from memory, uh, it turned into it <laughs> turned into a debacle because it turns out this guy had at one point uh, been convicted of hijacking a plane, and you can imagine how the Australian immigration authorities reacted yep. to that. But, yeah. <laughs> so we managed to get Billy X Jennings through the border regime. Um, in 2013. So he's kind of the archivist of the Black Panther Party, the unofficial kind of historian of the party. But he was around in the party um, and he was the personal aide assistant to um, p names that I'm sure people will be familiar with, Huey Newton, David Hilliard. And in this clip you're going to hear uh, sort of midway through um, his introduction because I, I, he had a lot to say, which was amazing, and he had a lot of visual stuff. So I wanted to pick out a clip where you didn't need to see the images that he was talking about. But it's a real kind of – it's an unintentional name-dropping kind of moment, and it just was one of those moments where you're like, whoa, 
he's talking about Tommy Smith. He's talking about, you know, when he was hanging out with Jimi Hendrix, um, Malcolm X, uh, the influence that he had um, on the people around him in the Black Panthers. So uh, we hope you enjoy this extract. Um, so I'll say no more. And this is Billy X Jennings, Black Panther Party member. What an intro. Woo. All power to the people. Can I hear that again? All power to all the people. Power to the workers. Now we can start. Uh, my name is Bill Jennings. This is the name my mother gave to me when I was born. Uh, along the way, my name has changed quite a few times. Uh, people know me as Billy X. Ex-party members know me as Billy X. And on the streets, people know me as BJ, Bill Jennings. Uh, first of all, I have a lot of material to cover. So I want to move along. Uh, even though our organization was only in existence for about 16 years, we left an impact, we left a footprint that hasn't been filled yet. So as a young person, um, I was born in 1950, right? And during that time, America imperialistic forces was engaged into, with a war with uh, North Korea. My dad was in the service. I was born in Alabama, Anniston, Alabama. So if anybody knows any history about the civil rights struggle, uh, Anniston was a part of that struggle. Matter of fact, if you go through history and look at some of the civil rights pictures, you will see uh, among those in the 1950s, a burning Greyhound bus. That bus was burned in the city that I came from. It was burned by the Ku Klux Klan's because they had Freedom Riders on that bus. So not only did they burn the bus, they beat up the Freedom Riders. So this is the kind of uh, climate that I came from. So my dad was in the service. My mother is from Hobson City. Uh, Hobson City, historically, is the only black city in the South, deep South, um, that had their own police department and their own mayor. They had like autonomy. Uh, I wouldn't really say autonomy, but they had control over certain aspects of their community. So my mother came from this environment where black people kind of ran everything. So she was never a very submissive person, you know. So in 1955, uh, Rosa Parks, who was everyone, everybody knew who Rosa Parks is? Thank you. So Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, there was a bus boycott in, in uh, Montgomery, which is not far from Anniston. So that particular year, 1955, the bus, uh, the bus boycott started. So it was the same year my father got walking papers to be transferred to San Diego, California, where the family moved to. So along the way, uh, so we catch a bus out to San Diego and we get established and my, we get our first apartment, right? I was like five or six years old at, at that time. And so we moved to California. But before we moved to California, this is what happened to me. This is typical of uh, the kind of racism that's embedded so deep in America. Um, there was a store, department store called Sears. 
If you ever been to America or you know about this corporation, they had stores everywhere. But this particular store in our town, you couldn't go in the front. Black people had to go in the back. As a young person, I didn't recognize it, didn't know that. So my mother had bought me some candy that I liked. And what happened was it was during the winter and we had came back out of the back of the store and was walking around to the front. And as we walked around to the front, this big gust of wind took my candy out of my little hands and blew it into the gutter. We were standing right in front of Sears, the, the main entrance where white people could go in. I didn't know black people couldn't go through there. But we were standing right in front of the door and I kept begging my mother. I was campaigning, pleading, I was lobbying, I was doing everything I could to get some more candy. So she finally looks down at me and says, Damn, if you want some more candy, we have to walk all the way around to the back to get into the store. So that was my first understanding of we couldn't go to the front. You know, we was treated different. And a few weeks later, Santa is coming to town and every young person wants to see Santa. And I was just like anybody else. And so when we got there, there was a crowd of people standing on the curb. So being a little guy, I couldn't see. So my dad put me on my shoulder, on his shoulder, so I could see, but I really couldn't see. But there were some white people kind of on the side or right in front of him. And they said, oh, you can come forward so your kid can see Santa, right? So my dad refused. So I didn't say anything to my dad because, you know, he's my dad. So uh, on the way home, I said, Dad, why didn't you go closer to the curb so I can see Santa? He says, you know, down here, black people are not supposed to stand in front of white people. So it's an unwritten law. So those are the things that was ingrained in me before I even left and went to California. So I know that is happening, right? So we moved to California, and because the civil rights struggle is going on in Montgomery, my mother buys a TV in 1956. So you older people know that back in the 50s, TV wasn't that common. I mean, it was like a luxury that most people didn't have. But my mother bought this TV to keep up with the struggle in Alabama so she can keep up with the civil rights struggle. So <laughs> during the whole process of this, my mother's sitting here watching TV every day at 6 o'clock news. I'm her oldest son sitting next to her. So we're watching the civil rights struggle, and black people are being beaten. Dogs are being sicked on people. They're being sprayed down with high-powered hoses because they want to vote. And during this whole process of civil rights struggle, uh, at one point, my mother gets so mad, she looks at me and says, don't you ever let anybody treat you like that. Don't you ever let anybody treat you like that. So that was instilled to me from the get-go to resist, you know, to stand up and be somebody, right? So time goes on. This is instilled in me. So uh, to move things forward, I'm in high, I go to high school, right? And as a freshman, you know, when you enter you know, you're in ninth grade. You don't know anything because you was in junior high last year, you know. So one guy took me under his wing because I used to fight a lot. Because if you said something to me I didn't like or something racial to me, I'm seeing you at 310. 310 was when class was over. I'm kicking your ass. So I had a reputation for being a, a fighter. So one day, this older, my older, my first mentor, 
says to me, pulls me to the side. He says, BJ, you can't fight everybody. You have to pick your battles. Of course, I didn't know what that meant. So this particular guy in 1968, he was ahead of me in, in, in class, so he went to college. So in 1968, where I'm a senior, he's in college, and he goes to the Olympics in 1968, and he holds his fist up. And the person I'm talking about is Thomas Smith. He was my first mentor. So... We were from this very small school. I mean, less than maybe a thousand people went to this school, but that's who I first gravitated to. So when I graduated from high school, um, I moved to Oakland. And in my apartment building was a panther, right? And uh, it was one day I was coming from this concert. I went to see Jimi Hendrix, matter of fact. I was coming from the Jimi Hendrix concert. It was like, during the summertime, I had just moved to Oakland, and he and some other Panthers were outside, right? And they were drinking wine and whatever. So I stopped, and you know, they started talk, I started talking to him, and he said that they were having a rally a few days from now, and if I wanted to go, I could be ready at 10 o'clock. So, the reason I came to Oakland from San Diego was to go to college. So one day before this rally happens, uh, there was another rally at the Alameda County Courthouse. If you've ever seen any pictures of the Panthers during that time, you see them from this big white building. They're circling and they're saying, free Huey off the pig. So I'm sitting in my criminology class during the summer of 68, and this big roar comes up, free Huey, free Huey. So my break was at 12 o'clock. It was about 11.30. So I ran up to the corner where I heard all this shouting at. And what had happened was it was the first day of Huey's trial. You know, Huey was a founding member of the Black Panther Party. And he was on trial for murder of a police. And one police had died and the other police uh, was shot and injured. So he was captured in 1967. And his trial had started in 1968 when I came to town. So that was more or less my introduction to the Black Panther Party. But to back this up a little bit, when I graduated from high school, my English teacher gave me a book that led me in that direction. It was called The Autobiography of Malcolm X. So the night I graduated from high school in San Diego, I caught a bus up to Oakland to go to school. So I'm reading the bus, reading the book on the Greyhound bus, and those who have ever read this particular book know that once you start, it's hard to put down. So anyway, I was at this class. I was reading this book, and I went to this rally, and happened Bobby Seale and, Bobby Seale and Eldridge Cleaver spoke that day. And he spoke about the same things that Malcolm was just telling me about in his book. So I followed what they were saying, and I later joined the Black Panther Party. So there's uh, certain elements that we had to uh, deal with, and political education was one of them. You know, we spent a lot of times reading and studying. In order to become a Panther, you had to read two hours a day by yourself. You had to attend political education class twice a week. We had a local political education 
education class and a national public education class. And the national one was on Sunday. Sunday, either Elder Cleaver, Bobby Searle, or some uh, leading member of the party would uh, pick a uh, subject and we would all participate in it. Now, like I said, the Black Panther Party kind of blew up. When black people, young people seen black, the Black Panther Party stand up to the police, every young person in America felt a sense of pride, just like I did. Finally, we are standing up to the oppressor. Finally, we're not going to take no more shit, you know, from the establishment. But we have to educate people first, right? So you go through this process. You have to read and study, read and study, read and study. And also you have to acquire a weapon. And you have to learn marksmanship. Um, you have to go to the range and learn how to shoot, you know, because we believed in, in necessary armed propaganda, because you're not going to deny us. We're not, take on, we're not going to take the same thing that our parents took. So what became, how we started was this. We were, like I said, we were a small group of people with no money. So here we found a place in San Francisco where we can buy these red books for a quarter, right? So we went to Chinatown in San Francisco and bought these red books. And we were studying from the red books, but it was a good price. So we took them to UC Berkeley University, that's right on the edge of the black community in Berkeley, and we were selling these said books for a dollar, right? So we sold stacks and stacks of red books in the 1960s to students at UC Berkeley, right? So therefore, we used that money, come on, we used that money to start our first newspaper. This is the first issue of the Black Panther Party newspaper. Number one, volume one, and it's all about police brutality. The police had killed these young brothers right here, as they do often, you know. So the Black Panther Party was started, like I said, in 1966. This particular community newspaper is dated October 1st, 1966. The Black Panther Party started October 15th, 1966. So these, these incidents like this were occurring often. So this is the front page of what people were reading throughout the Bay Area, Oakland, San Francisco. So the Black Panther Party, Huey P. Dutton, Bobby Seale started the Black Panther Party. So some of the first things that we did was educate people on legal aid because most people at that time didn't know the law. So we were trying to educate people through our newspaper. At first, they didn't want to publish our newspaper, but there was a, a radical group in Berkeley. Uh, they had a newspaper called the Berkeley Barb, and the Barb came out on Wednesday. So nobody wanted to print our paper because we were too revolutionary, too black. So we called the Berkeley Barb, and the Berkeley, the editor, Max Shear, said, hey, we get our paper printed on Wednesday. Why don't you ride with us to San Francisco, and maybe they'll print your paper. And I said, okay. So we, one of our members rode over there, and indeed they printed our paper. And that's how our paper started coming out on Wednesdays uh, through the Berkeley Bar, a solidarity at work, right? So, they, so the paper started coming out. And so from 1967, the first issue, the Black Panther put out 520 issues of the Black Panther Party newspaper. In this said paper, you would find articles about liberation. You will find out things about the, ra uh, the rallies the Black Panther Party were, were um, sponsoring. You will find out about the 10-point program that you have in your hand. That is one thing that we've really pushed on people, right? To make people understand what we're about. Uh, for instance, we had 
covers dedicated to uh, Malcolm X. This particular issue deals with Japan's support for the Black Panther Party. Yes, Japan. There's 0% black people in Japan, but there were students in Japan that supported the Black Panther Party. So the Black Panther Party was starting to gain notoriety throughout the world. You know, and so what happened was the party blew up. You know, we had one, one office in Oakland, and next thing you know, we have 51 offices of the Black Panther Party throughout America in 30 major cities. We grew too fast. So in 1969, um, we call it the purge. <laughs> During that time, we were eliminating members of our organizations and chapters of our organization that didn't live up to our particular standards, right? And at the same time, 1969, saw the biggest attack on the Black Panther Party by the federal and state agencies of the United States government. During the course of the Black Panther Party, um, there was something like 28 party members killed shot dead, and many of you might know about Fred Hampton, who was shot and killed in his, as he slept in 1969. He was a leading member of our organization in Chicago, Illinois, and if you go to our website, www, it's about time, it's on that piece of paper that you have, you'll find videos that deal with that history of police oppression on the Black Panther Party. The police would actually spend millions of dollars trying to destroy the Black Panther Party, Annually, they were spending something like seven million dollars of 1960 money, and you know, in 1960, I mean, money was different than now. I mean, that seven million bucks probably be 21 million dollars a day, trying to destroy an organization that was serving the people. Our comrades across the world. So that was Billy X Jennings. I uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I actually chaired that session uh, and got to introduce him. But it wasn't even me introducing him. It was um, Gary Foley who, as people will know, is a, one of the most amazing um, Aboriginal activists and staunch yeah, fighter for Indigenous rights in Australia who I introduced Gary Foley who wanted to come to introduce Billy X Jennings. So that was also a pretty magic moment. Um. The next speaker on this Highlights of Marxism Conferences past episode of Red Flag Radio is Eamon McCann. Now, Eamon McCann came to Marxism in 2015 uh, from Ireland, and he is a socialist activist. He's a, also a, a, a People Before Profit Council member in Derry, and he was involved and he's been involved in politics, as you'll hear in this clip. Um, since the 1970s, the 1960s even, I think, and he talks about growing up in the 1950s in Ireland. And this is a clip uh, of him speaking as part of a panel at a, at a session that we run at Marxism every year that's basically why you should be a socialist. And I think this is one of the most convincing um, contributions to that discussion that I've ever heard. Were you in the room for this one? Yeah. 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 And he sort of manages to tell stories in a way that just really vividly capture um, the kind of ordinariness of political life and also the kind of extraordinariness of what we're trying to achieve in our actions as revolutionary socialists. So um, 
Listen carefully and you might need to listen again. It's got a pretty strong Irish accent, but it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth tuning in. So if you're doing something else and trying to listen, you might want to just sit down and enjoy this. I think it's about 15 minutes um, of Eamon McCann. And another big figure started from my chain to was a man called Archbishop Macarius. I don't remember how many people remember Archbishop Macarius. He was the leader of the Greek Orthodox Church in Cyprus. Uh, and was quite a money. He's actually, as you can imagine, he was called Archbishop. He wasn't what you would call a radical, you know. Uh, uh, very few of them about in the ranks of the in the Archbishop community. Uh, uh, there's not very many radicals. Everybody's a community these days. Uh, 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 it's true. I heard somebody referring just a couple of days ago to uh, the criminal community. Uh, <laughs> this is the what? You know, the argument is to be defending their rights as well. But anyway, sort of, it's defies the word of its meaning. Sort of when it stretches, uh, 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 when it stretches that far. So, but I mean, the, the, the Archbishop Macarius was the leader of uh, Greek Cypriots, or at least he was the guy who was sort of recognised right, as, as uh, the leader, both politically and spiritually, sort of, of uh, Greek Cypriots in the fight against the British. Uh, the British, and hardly anybody remembers that now, it was a very important event. And actually, if you look at Greece and Cerizia today, if I pronounced it correctly, and nobody seems to know exactly how you pronounce it, uh, 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 they, 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 actually you can't understand that fully, what's happening in Greece, unless you understand the Cyprus question and the fact that British imperialism ruled in Cyprus and divided it, sort of, and it's now divided between the Greeks and the Turks. Archbishop Macarius was exiled to the Seychelles Islands. The British just took him, put him on a warship, drove him to, Earth, uh, 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 to the Seychelles Islands and dumped him there. Inconsiderable comfort, I have to say. Now, looking back, nevertheless, it was far from home. Sort of a, 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 everybody on our street knew about Archbishop Macarius. Everybody sort of would have known about those things. Sort of because uh, 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 it was part of the culture, I suppose, sort of uh, uh, of the area, and it keyed into our own experience. It overlapped with, it intersected with things that people understood, sort of in their own day-to-day uh, uh, -day lives. So, for a start, sort of, we understood about British imperialism. Nobody had to teach you that. Sort of, we all knew that Brit the Brits were imperialists, sort of, and they did bad things all over the world. You know, sort of, everybody knew sort of what side to be on. Thus, so if it didn't matter that Archbishop Macarius was an archbishop and some other right-wing ideas, people knew what side they were on. That's the point. People knew what side they were on far more readily than people now know, sort of, and I'm not talking sort of about political parties or people who are political activists, but the generality, sort of, of, pe of people around, sort of, are not instinctively on the side of the Afghans or of the Iraqis. Sort of, so much propaganda comes uh, at them, so much demonization, so much stereotyping that, uh, of people, and it's quite difficult. Really, sort of, unless you sort of understand, unless you sort of educate yourself to you understand what struggle is about and how various struggles, as Curry was talking about, fit in together, sort of, and make a world, sort of, a, a, which is grotesquely unfair. Sort of, so, socialism, sort of, in Yadagop, my father was a, 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 the biggest hero in our house when I was uh, growing up, it was a man called Anoran Devon. I don't know how many people remember him, probably hardly anybody. He was sort of what was called or what passed for, sort of a left-wing leader in the British Labour Party in the immediate post-war years after the uh, Second World War. And the reason why he's a great hero in our house is that he was the Minister for Health in the Attlee government immediately after the war, and he's the man who fought through Parliament sort of a, a, and introduced the National Health Service. Guaranteed people's sort of, a, a health of the highest quality from the cradle to the grave was his phrase. Sort of, and that was true. He did that. 
You know, uh, uh, it's been destroyed now, of course, under Thatcher and under the Labour governments which have followed. But at that time, Norman Bevan's name was spoken of. He was a former miner from South Wales. So he had a good start, sort of, on the progressive stakes, sort of, before he was corrupted but later on, sort of, the years in Parliament and the rest of it. But at that time, he did great work on that. And also, the, 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 the Education Act of 1947, that was attributable to the Labour Party, British Labour Party, sort of in the immediate post-war, uh, post-war years. Now, those might seem like small things. They're not small things. They were huge things. And what they did, what they did was create in people's minds an expectation of what society would do for them. Not a revolutionary expectation by any means at all. I was listening to the radio sort of a few months back, and there were people on a phone-in program, and they were talking about, it's terrible what's going on today. People have this sense of entitlement. They think they're entitled to a job, lazy bastards. They think they're entitled to a house, you know, starting when they won't work to get the mark, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, this culture of entitlement is ruining the world. Actually, it's true. It's true that people in the post-war years in Britain and Ireland, particularly in Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and benefited, and was a benefit, sort of from these measures that I'm talking about, that they did begin to feel, and it was passed on to me, that we were entitled to things entitled in society to a decent education, which will be free, in which the books will be free and everything else that they will be free, that we were entitled to top-class health care from the cradle to the grave, that we were entitled to work, and if we, society couldn't give you work, that we were entitled to social security at a decent level. It's absolutely true. And I grew up with a concept of entitlement just from being a, a, a citizen, and that that's under attack now. And that's regarded by the ruling class, including the ruling class as represented by social democratic parties, as well as openly uh, a conservative party. And that comes now in a world, we're talking about entitlement, so it comes in a world which is more grotesquely unfair and more grotesquely divided than ever before in human history. Now that might sound like it's a big, big thing to say. How can you prove that? Ever in human history and all the thousands of years out of human history, the fact that it's, 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 it's obvious in a way, you know, because we have people in the world today, reading the things sort of, a, 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 it, was on, well, it was on some session yesterday, about the, about the media, about sort of that uh, Rupert Murdoch has got $34 billion in personal wealth. 30, I, I don't know, what does $34 billion look like? What's the difference between $34 billion and $44 billion? Does anybody know? Because these are sums which are beyond the range of human imagination. And he's only, he's only the 91st richest person in the world, according uh, uh, to what I saw last night on a slide. So there's 90 people wealthier than he is. This is riches sort of beyond the dreams of avarice of any previous generation. And at the same time, we have millions upon millions of people who are living dirt poor on the very edge of extinction because they can't sort of get enough to feed themselves and feed their children and so forth. There has never been that gap between the richest in the world and millions of ordinary people. Never, ever, ever since he crawled out of caves has that existed. And yet at the same time, do we know that enough riches, the, the, the earth, is productive enough, the wealth is there, enough to give everybody on earth a decent life. There is no reason at all why everybody shouldn't have adequate food, adequate shelter, adequate clothing, adequate education, adequate health. There is no reason for it. 
The present system is utterly irrational. More irrational than it has ever been. So there, when I relate that back sort of to the little lessons that I'm talking about from the 1940s and the 1950s, there, you know, and that's about, about uh, either way things have changed, sort of, I've just remembered. When I was just not all that many years ago, uh, I was living in London. Uh, this would have been in the 1970s. Lived in London for a couple of years, uh, with my partner, and we had two children. And when I was born, sort of at the age of about uh, nine months or so, of my daughter Kitty, and uh, I was born, we actually got a phone call from the local council and said, uh, "Say your daughter, there, Kitty, here she's registered, nine months old now. Uh, we've got a place for her in a crash." And this crash was an offer, eight o'clock if you wanted it, eight o'clock in the morning to six o'clock at night. You get in all free. Didn't have to do anything. Well, my second son, when my second child, Luke, was born about 18 months later. So I forget why, sort of, but we didn't send him to the crash for about a year. We got this sort of rather tentative phone call from the crash. He said, uh, I believe sort of, you've got Luke now. Your daughter Kitty tells us that she's got a brother now, Luke, and he's uh, a year old, we understand, and you haven't said it. Is there anything wrong? Have you, know, sort of, have you got complaints against us for some reason that you haven't sent sort of look along, along? Nowadays, you try to get a crash place. You try to get sort of any childcare of an adequate nature that will enable a mother and a father to go out to work if they uh, uh, have got work and if they want to. Try to get that, you've got to get it from a private crash. And it comes at such a cost that work doesn't make any sense. So did you go out and have to depend on that? Now that's only in the space. My daughter's 40 years old now. So uh, uh, my son Luke uh, is 37, 38, whatever he is. I should know that, shouldn't I? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so that's not a long time. Look how things have changed. How dramatically worse things have got. The old idea that you know that uh, every generation was going to do a bit better than the one, uh, the previous one. That idea that we all expected that your children will have a better life sort of than you have. When I was growing up, that was taken for granted. You know, sort of, I went to university. I was the second kid from our street who went to university. I can remember the first, Paddy Doherty lived up our street the year before me, went to university free. You know, sort of, you just did your exams and if you passed them, and the truth, they weren't all that difficult. Because most people passed them, they passed them, off you went to university. And actually, not only was it free, they gave you money. I used to have a grant from the state. Sort of, I forget how much it was, but it wasn't bad at all. Sort of, when it came in with three bits, sort of three tranches or whatever you would call it these days. And usually we went out and drank for a couple of days, sort of, and then wondered afterwards how on earth are we going to manage. But the money was there. They paid you to go to university. Now, I, I, I don't think I'm all that old. You know, sort of, an, uh, 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 sort of, this isn't my time. How rapidly things that are given to you and that you begin to believe, and rightly so, that you're entitled to, how rapidly they can be snatched away sort of by the system so that your children don't have it, so that they become a vague sepia tone memory sort of of the good old days, and so forth. So they, they, and the point that I'm making is that in a world of abundance, in a world sort of where there's no sort of rational reason why everybody cannot have plenty, not just enough, plenty, there's plenty of wealth in the world. They got the capacity to feed everybody in the world sort of an adequate uh, uh, diet. And that situation, to be sort of a, a, a socialist, is to do no more than express common sense. That's all that it is. Common sense. Sort of in the question that we have to answer, and the question which is there, sort of is, how do we get from here to there? 
And one thing is for certain, you won't get from here to there, you won't get from here to there by waiting for it to happen. That's obvious. You're going to have to, it's obvious that you're going to have to struggle because he looks at the number of things that are taken away from us by powerful forces. So if you hear the propaganda all the time being drummed into people's heads, drummed into kids' heads at school, by the newspapers, by television, sort of everybody else, sort of you got to live within your means, sort of if you're having enough food, it must be your own fault. You're lazy bastards if you don't have work, so you're feckless people and so forth. So no idea that sort of people are entitled uh, to anything. So it's not going to be given to anybody. It's not going to be sort of like me growing up sort of in the 1950s, and literally stuff just coming along. I was taking it for granted that, uh, that you would have. That is not going to happen. Your children are going to be worse off than you are. Yeah. Overwhelmingly, worse off than you are. And their children are going to be worse again. That's the trajectory sort of, of uh, the developments in, uh, uh, in our world. So if I'm being totally stopped, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, the, the idea Sort of, of struggle, is so struggle for socialism, is simply the idea of overturning that. And there's one other thing sort of, uh, that has to do sort of, with fighting for uh, 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 a socialism. Oh, this won't take long. Uh, 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 <laughs> it takes too long, just say shut up and I'll shut up. It's, uh, uh, and it's this, sorry, that it's not just material things that we're deprived of. We're deprived of spiritual things. It's one of the best socialist songs, in my opinion, ever is Bread and Roses. You know, sort of from the United States, sort of written by a man called James Oppenheimer, sort of in uh, whatever it was, sort of the 1880s and so forth. He says, you know, about small art and love and beauty, their drudging spirits knew. Yes, it is bread we fight for, but we fight for roses too. That's also to do with socialism, because you can't have beauty in your life unless you've got the means of subsistence in the first place. You can't have art unless you're able to feed yourself and clothe yourself and have a house to live in. And these things go together. And you're, you, you, glimpse, you glimpse the possibility of freedom when you see art, when art comes natural to, naturally to you. And that can only happen when the economic resources are sufficient to every person and, and, and every family. Because all the ugliness that surrounds us, the muck of ages, as Marx called it, all that ugliness which it bears down upon us from the exploitative and unfair world uh, uh, that we live in. The only way to get rid of that, the only way to slough that off, the only way to do it isn't struggle. You can't do it. Individuals, perhaps, individuals can be lucky or be creative or whatever they are, but for the mass of humanity, the way you free yourself and to enjoy the world of the imagination, the world of creativity, the way you do that is in struggle. Sort of, and sometimes we miss that. Because struggle seems prosaic. And sometimes socialism seems prosaic. And some aspects of it are. We have to know about theory. Sort of we have to know sort of how the way the world works. And how the economic system works. And that's not very exciting at times. That's even boring at times. And requires sort of mental effort. Though William Blake says, you know, I shall not cease from mental strife. Nor shall my sword sleep in my hand. Till we have built Jerusalem and England's green and pleasant land. Envisioning, envisioning sort of a different type of society. So it's when people sense themselves to be part of that struggle. It's when they rise up that they get an idea, not only of their own power, the sense sort of being able to overthrow the economic system, but also a sense of their own potential of what lies within them. As Shelley said in his poem about 
uh, the Peterloo Massacre, which is a massacre of people who were fighting for the vote, sort of in 1819, sort of in Petersfield in uh, Manchester, when the army came in just by one minute. Oh, uh, 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 <laughs> I see you looking impatient, that's all. So I came in uh, 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 and slaughtered a brilliant book by Paul Foote. Sort of, uh, about that, which everybody should be. Is there only a thing about the Peter, uh, the Peter Lee massacre, which I suddenly remember, which is hardly ever referred to, is that a, 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 the crowd assembled in the centre of Manchester, having marched in searing ranks in time uh, <coughs> a, from six different points on the outskirts of Manchester. It was a most magnificent demonstration. The people had practiced, practiced marching, working people for weeks beforehand to make this sort of a most impressive demonstration, which they did, and that's what terrified the authorities. What terrified them even more, and this is hardly ever referred to, is that a quarter of the marches were women. That is hardly ever remembered, or hardly ever mentioned. The first time, sort of in Britain anyway, that a working class woman actually marched, sort of not in a separate contingent, but along with men, to fight sort of for the improvement of, of everybody. And if you're not convinced now to be a socialist, or at least to investigate socialist ideas, then um, you don't need to listen to Red Flag Radio anymore. That's my opinion. Yeah, amazing stuff. So you're listening to Red Flag Radio. Thank you for listening. We have a world to win. Mm-hmm.